Chapters 1 to 4 of Book 4 of Toilers of the Sea, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams. Toilers of the Sea, Part 1, Sieur Clubin by Victor Hugo. Translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book 4, The Bagpipe. Chapter 1, Streaks of Fire on the Horizon. Gilliatt had never spoken to Déruchette. He knew her from having seen her at a distance, as men know the morning star. At the period when Déruchette had met Gilliatt on the road leading from St. Peter's Port to Vale, and had surprised him by tracing his name in the snow, she was just sixteen years of age. Only the evening before Mess Lethierry had said to her, "'Come, no more childish tricks. You are a great girl.' That word Gilliatt, written by the young maiden, had sunk into an unfathomed depth. What were women to Gilliatt? He could not have answered that question himself. When he met one, he generally inspired her with something of the timidity which he felt himself. He never spoke to a woman except from urgent necessity. He had never played the part of a gallant to any one of the country girls. When he found himself alone on the road, and perceived a woman coming towards him, he would climb over a fence, or bury himself in some copse. He even avoided old women. Once in his life he had seen a Parisian lady. A Parisienne on the wing was a strange event in Guernsey at that distant epoch, and Gilliatt had heard this gentle lady relate her little troubles in these words. "'I am very much annoyed. I have got some spots of rain upon my bonnet. Pale buff is a shocking colour for rain. Having found, some time afterwards, between the leaves of a book, an old engraving, representing a lady of the Chaussée d'Antin, in full dress, he had stuck it against the wall at home as a souvenir of this remarkable apparition.' on that christmas morning when he had met Déruchette, and when she had written his name and disappeared laughing he returned home scarcely conscious of why he had gone out that night he slept little he was dreaming of a thousand things that it would be well to cultivate black radishes in the garden that he had not seen the boat from sark pass by had anything happened to it then he remembered that he had seen the white stone crop in flower a rare thing at that season he had never known exactly who was the woman who had reared him and he made up his mind that she must have been his mother and thought of her with redoubled tenderness he called to mind the lady's clothing in the old leathern trunk he thought that the reverend jacquemin herod would probably one day or other be appointed dean of st peter's port and surrogate of the bishop and that the rectory of st samson would become vacant next he remembered that the morrow of christmas would be the twenty-seventh day of the moon and that consequently high water would be at twenty-one minutes past three the half-ebb at a quarter past seven low water at thirty-three minutes past nine and half-flood at thirty-nine minutes past twelve he recalled in the most trifling details the costume of the highlander who had sold him the bagpipe his bonnet with a thistle ornament his claymore his close-fitting short jacket his filler-bag ornamented with a pocket and his snuff-horn his pins set with a scottish stone his two girdles his sash and belts his sword cutlass 
dirk and sken do his black-sheathed knife with its black handle ornamented with two cairngorms and the bare knees of the soldier his socks gaiters and buckled shoes this highly equipped figure became a spectre in his imagination which pursued him with a sense of feverishness as he sunk into oblivion when he awoke it was full daylight and his first thought was of Deruchette. the next night he slept more soundly but he was dreaming again of the scottish soldier in the midst of his sleep he remembered that the after-Christmas sittings of the chief law court would commence on the 21st of January. He dreamed also about the Reverend Jacquemin Herod. He thought of Deruchette, and seemed to be in violent anger with her. He wished he had been a child again to throw stones at her windows. Then he thought that if he were a child again, he should have his mother by his side, and he began to sob. Gilliatt had a project at this time of going to pass three months at Chusy or at the Miricier, but he did not go. He walked no more along the road to St. Peter's Port. He had an odd fancy that his name of Gilliatt had remained there traced upon the ground, and that the passers-by stopped to read it. Chapter 2. The Unknown Unfolds Itself by Degrees on the other hand gilliatt had the satisfaction of seeing the braves every day by some accident he was continually passing that way his business seemed always to lead him by the path which passed under the wall of deruchette's garden one morning as he was walking along this path he heard a market-woman who was returning from the braves say to another mess is fond of sea-kale he dug in his garden of the bout de la rue a trench for sea-kale the sea-kale is a vegetable which has a flavour like asparagus the wall of the garden of the brave was very low it would have been easy to scale it the idea of scaling it would have appeared to him terrible but there was nothing to hinder his hearing as any one else might the voices of persons talking as he passed in the rooms or in the garden he did not listen, but he heard them. Once he could distinguish the voices of the two servants, Grace and Douce, disputing. It was a sound which belonged to the house, and their quarrel remained in his ears like a remembrance of music. On another occasion he distinguished a voice which was different, and which seemed to him to be the voice of Deruchette. He quickened his pace, and was soon out of hearing. The words uttered by that voice, however, remained fixed in his memory. He repeated them at every instant. They were, "'Will you please give me the little broom?' By degrees he became bolder. He had the daring to stay a while. One day it happened that Deruchette was singing at her piano, altogether invisible from without, although her window was open. The air was that of Bonnie Dundee. He grew pale, but he screwed his courage to the point of listening. Springtide came. One day Gilliatt enjoyed a beatific vision. The heavens were opened, and there, before his eyes, appeared Deruchette watering lettuces in her little garden. Soon afterwards he took to doing more than merely listening there. He watched her habits, observed her hours, and waited to catch a glimpse of her. 
In all this he was very careful not to be seen. The year advanced. The time came when the trellises were heavy with roses and haunted by the butterflies. By little and little he had come to conceal himself for hours behind her wall, motionless and silent, seen by no one, and holding his breath as Déruchette passed in and out of her garden. Men grow accustomed to poison by degrees. From his hiding-place he could often hear the sound of Déruchette conversing with Mess Lethierry under a thick arch of leaves, in a spot where there was a garden-seat. The words came distinctly to his ears. What a change had come over him! He had even descended to watch and listen. Alas! there is something of the character of a spy in every human heart. There was another garden-seat, visible to him, and nearer. Déruchette would sit there sometimes. From the flowers that he had observed her gathering, he had guessed her taste in the matter of perfumes. The scent of the bindweed was her favourite, then the pink, then the honeysuckle, then the jasmine. The rose stood only fifth in the scale. She looked at the lilies, but did not smell them. Gilliatt figured her in his imagination from this choice of odours. With each perfume he associated some perfection. The very idea of speaking to Déruchette would have made his hair stand on end. A poor old rag-picker, whose wandering brought her from time to time, into the little road leading under the enclosure of the Braves, had occasionally remarked Gilliatt's assiduity beside the wall, and his devotion for this retired spot. Did she connect the presence of a man before this wall with the possibility of a woman behind it? Did she perceive that vague, invisible thread? Was she, in her decrepit mendicancy, still youthful enough to remember something of the old happier days? And could she, in this dark night and winter of her wretched life, still recognize the dawn? We know not. But it appears that, on one occasion, passing near Gilliatt at his post, she brought to bear upon him something as like a smile, as she was still capable of, and muttered between her teeth, "'It is getting warmer.' Gilliatt heard the words, and was struck by them. "'It warms one,' he muttered, with an inward note of interrogation. "'It is getting warmer. What did the old woman mean?' He repeated the phrase mechanically all day, but he could not guess its meaning. Chapter 3. The Air Bonnie Dundee Finds an Echo on the Hill It was in a spot behind the enclosure of the Garden of the Brave, at an angle of the wall, half concealed with holly and ivy, and covered with nettles, wild mallow, and large white mullen growing between the blocks of stone, that he passed the greater part of that summer. He watched there, lost in deep thought. The lizards grew accustomed to his presence, and basked in the sun among the same stones. The summer was bright and full of dreamy indolence. Overhead the light clouds came and went. Gilliatt sat upon the grass. The air was full of the songs of birds. He held his two hands up to his forehead, sometimes trying to recollect himself. Why should she write my name in the snow? 
from a distance the sea breeze came up in gentle breaths at intervals the horn of the quarrymen sounded abruptly warning the passers-by to take shelter as they shattered some mass with gunpowder the port of st sampson was not visible from this place but he could see the tips of masts above the trees the seagulls flew wide and afar gilliatt had heard his mother say that women could love men that such things happen sometimes he remembered it and said within himself who knows may not Deruchette love me then a feeling of sadness would come upon him he would say she too thinks of me in her turn it is well he remembered that Deruchette was rich and that he was poor and then the new boat appeared to him an execrable invention. He could never remember what day of the month it was. He would stare listlessly at the great bees, with their yellow bodies and their short wings, as they entered with a buzzing noise into the holes in the wall. One evening Deruchette went indoors to retire to bed. She approached her window to close it. The night was dark. Suddenly something caught her ear, and she listened. Somewhere in the darkness there was a sound of music. It was someone, perhaps on the hillside, or at the foot of the towers of Vale Castle, or perhaps further still, playing an air upon some instrument. Deruchette recognized her favorite melody, Bonnie Dundee, played upon the bagpipe. She thought little of it. From that night the music might be heard again from time to time at the same hours, particularly when the nights were very dark. Deruchette was not much pleased with all this. Chapter 4 A serenade by night may please a lady fair, the troubadour beware. Unpublished Comedy Four years passed away. Deruchette was approaching her twenty-first year, and was still unmarried. Some writer has said that a fixed idea is a sort of gimlet. Every year gives it another turn. To pull out the first year is like plucking out the hair by the roots. In the second year, like tearing the skin. In the third, like breaking the bones. And in the fourth, like removing the very brain itself. Gilliatt had arrived at this fourth stage. He had never yet spoken a word to Deruchette. He lived and dreamed near that delightful vision. This was all. It happened one day that, finding himself by chance at Saint-Samson, he had seen Deruchette talking with Mess Lethierry at the door of the Brave, which opens upon the roadway of the port. Gilliatt ventured to approach very near. He fancied that at the very moment of his passing she had smiled. There was nothing impossible in that. Deruchette still heard, from time to time, the sound of the bagpipe. Mess Lethierry had also heard this bagpipe. By degrees he had come to remark this persevering musician under Deruchette's window. A tender strain, too, all the more suspicious. A nocturnal gallant was a thing not to his taste. His wish was to marry Deruchette in his own time, when she was willing and he was willing, purely and simply, without any romance or music or anything of that sort. Irritated at it, he had at last kept a watch, and he fancied that he had detected Gilliatt. 
He passed his fingers through his beard, a sign of anger, and grumbled out, "'What has that fellow got to pipe about?' "'He is in love with Deruchette, that is clear. "'You waste your time, young man. "'Anyone who wants Deruchette must come to me "'and not loiter about playing the flute.' "'An event of importance long foreseen occurred soon afterwards. "'It was announced that the Reverend Jacquemin Erod "'was appointed surrogate of the Bishop of Winchester, "'Dean of the Island and Rector of St. Peter's Port, "'and that he would leave Saint-Sampson for St. Peter's "'immediately after his successor should be installed. "'It could not be long to the arrival of the new rector. "'He was a gentleman of Norman extraction, Monsieur Ebenezer Caudray.' Some facts were known about the new rector, which the benevolent and malevolent interpreted in a contrary sense. He was known to be young and poor, but his youth was tempered with much learning, and his poverty by good expectations. In the dialect specially invented for the subject of riches and inheritances, death goes by the name of expectations. He was the nephew and heir of the aged and opulent dean of Saint-Assaf. At the death of this old gentleman he would be a rich man. Monsieur Caudray had distinguished relations. He was almost entitled to the quality of honourable. As regards his doctrine, people judged differently. He was an Anglican, but, according to the expression of Bishop Tillotson, a libertine. That is, in reality, one who was very severe. He repudiated all Phariseeism. He was a friend rather of the presbytery than the episcopacy. He dreamed of the primitive church of the days when even Adam had the right to choose his Eve, and when Frumentinus, bishop of Hierapolis, carried off a young maiden to make her his wife, and said to her parents, Her will is such, and such is mine. You are no longer her mother, and you are no longer her father. I am the bishop of Hierapolis, and this is my wife. Her father is in heaven. If the common belief could be trusted, Monsieur Caudray subordinated the text, Honour thy father and thy mother, to that other text, in his eyes of higher significance. The woman is the flesh of the man. She shall leave her father and mother to follow her husband. This tendency, however, to circumscribe the parental authority and to favour religiously every mode of forming the conjugal tie is peculiar to all Protestantism, particularly in England and singularly so in America. End of chapter 4 of Book 4 Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com